Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 75 for Monday, June 22nd, 2015, which is the day in which the first episode of Neon Genesis Evangelion takes place. I definitely knew that before Dave. That's your favorite anime. Yeah. I'm a known known fan of this show. Um, Today is our third quarter quell of the Fighting in the War Room era, which is really exciting. We took a week off so we could prepare for this better, which I like to think will be worth it for all of us. our theme is that we're talking about movies that in some way or another taught us about who we wanted to be or who we thought we were going to be when we grew up or kind of set a model that we were in some way aiming ourselves toward. This was your suggestion. This was my suggestion. We should psychoanalyze why this was your suggestion. That is it. Hmm. I, I have not given myself that psychoanalysis. Maybe I'll get, get into that we'll get when there, yeah. uh, my segment comes. Uh, do, I, do I tell everyone what our movies are going to be as, before we start or should we just no. do it? No, I think we just do it. Yeah. Okay. Grab your weapons. segment which is about back to the future i feel like it's important to know that when i was a kid i did not know that other people were fans of back to the future i don't know how i really saw this movie for the first time i don't really remember at what point in my life it showed up by the time i was about seven or eight i think i was fully a huge fan of back to the future and this was in uh, say 1991 1992 and I didn't know, and you know, this it had been two or three years since Back to the Future Three came out. I never saw any of them in theaters, and it was far enough away, and I think it probably had become uncool to the point that other kids just were not into Back to the Future. I remember going to Universal Studios with my family when I was around that age, and getting a Back to the Future postcard and writing on the ride and being very excited about it, and writing my friend a postcard like full of Back to the Future in jokes that she did not get at all because she could not have cared less about Back to the Future. So it's I think a lot of people have experienced this where they grow up loving something and then. And later get on the internet and find out that there's a ton of other people who love it. And Back to the Future in particular has kind of gone from something you love from your childhood to something that I think has been a really harsh victim of the internet nostalgia machine where every day is supposedly the day that Marty McFly goes into the future and it's I don't it, it makes you feel a little more tired of it than I would like to be. Our podcast has been completely innocent from perpetuating that, <laughs> of course. Listen, I just write the words that Dave puts on the dock. I will say literally anything like Ron Burgundy. Uh, so anyway, as a kid, I did not know other people loved Back to the Future. I just loved Back to the Future. And I don't think I ever really consciously thought about wanting to grow to be Marty McFly or anything like that. I, although I would definitely have said Michael J. Fox was my first celebrity crush for a long time. Did but, you search for a doc in your life? Were you like, give me a doc? Oh my God, no. I would have been way too like... I was not nearly enough of a self-starter to like befriend a weird inventor. <laughs> that creepy old man next door did not lure you in? No, and it actually oh, didn't make me... I, I wasn't really an inventor kid either, so like none of that appealed to me. It was really... So like, as a kid, there was the time travel that appealed to me. As I think it does a lot of people, and not just not just time travel, but the way that Back to the Future is time travel that's really navel gazing and about you. Like I think you know, there was also around that time a King King Arthur's Court where uh, 
and that movie mm-hmm. was not an especially good movie but that kind of time travel you're just going and experiencing a time in the past didn't interest me nearly as much as like going back and like mining your own life and your own story and for you know a self-involved kid which i think most kids are uh that had a lot of appeal. But when I think about it now, and especially when I watched Back to the Future 2 a couple days ago, I just remembered how vividly I wanted to be more like Marty McFly, like having the ability to go through this adventure, like kind of unscathed by the whole thing, like basically keeping your head on your shoulders, like being able to deal with really crazy shit that gets thrown at you and coming up with solutions, even though, you know, Doc is the one who's the smart one who's really giving, getting him out of the jam. And even stuff as simple as, like, the way that he kind of runs and jumps and, like, lands on his feet and seems really agile, like, on the skateboard. Or there's this one moment in Back to the Future 2 where he's trying to get the book back from Biff and, like, drops, I swear, like, four stories down into a stairwell and just, like, lands <laughs> like a cat. Um, and it's it's really not a very complicated thing. Like, it's a really classic, like, adventure hero kind of thing. I think you could look at a lot. I mean, Indiana Jones is a really extreme, different example, but... Any, any kid who's like at the center of a movie where they're getting to run around and do a lot of stuff is like basically what Marty McFly is. But it's the movie that I really attached onto. And it's, made, it's kind of bummed me out thinking about it and realizing like I had no trouble identifying with this like teenage boy hero, but also there was no girl equivalent at all to look up to. And I don't even mean now. I mean, you could look up to Katniss in the Hunger Games, who's like the often cited example, but like her life sucks. Like everything around her is shitty. Like, and that the fact that Back to the Future takes place in like a relatively sunny real world with like realistic stakes, I think is what made that so appealing to me and made it such like help me grind onto it as a kid who was not into fantasy or sci-fi or anything like that. Yeah, Tomorrowland wishes it could be. Oh man, Marty McFly. Yeah, <laughs> that's a really good point. She, uh, she, yeah, she definitely has a couple of things going like that for her. She, you know, she's she's, she's adventurous. She's breaking into a launch pad, but does not develop as a character because you know, Back to the Future is a extremely well written movie, as a lot of people know. But you well, what if you of, stick with like even Elizabeth Shue? What about like oh. adventures in baby in babysitting? Oh, Isn't I that see. Sort of like the female Marty McFly from that era. Oh, except she's babysitting. I mean, oh, that seems yeah. a little obvious. Well, Marty McFly is playing in a high school rock show. Like that's the outside plot of time travel, right? And helping yeah, like a it's, dude. It's the time travel that always interested me. Like it's not. It's getting into something a little bit over your head. Like, I mean, I liked fantasy books to the extent of like, like there was a book I read about a kid who accidentally clones himself and he's like dealing with clones in his basement. I read like Nancy Drew and that kind of thing. Like things in which something slightly unusual happened. And I think there were also like time travel level books that I would have read as a kid at that time. But there, I mean, girls were never in them. Like girls never get to be off on a fantastical adventure. I think for a lot of cynical reasons we're all really familiar with. And speaking of Elizabeth Shue, in Back to the Future oh, yeah. 2, where they just ditch her for the entire, like they found her, it was inconvenient that they put her in the DeLorean at the end of the first one. So they knock her out and make her as tangential to the plot as humanly possible. And I really just don't, I don't understand why it didn't make sense to them to have Jennifer be part of the story the second time around. Other than, like, girls are boring, I well, guess? Because it's Marty's story. It's about Marty's well, they, realization they yeah, about his didn't. life and his future and what he holds precious, right? But, like, why yeah. not let Jennifer be part of that? I mean, obviously, he's going to get married to her. It is a little weird that they're going to get married, right? 
like automatically. Has, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're high school sweethearts, so they're automatically getting married. There's no future. Well, for they kind of have a her. shitty life until you know. Then they go back and fix it for the in the third one. Well, from how I understand it, that was something that like Bob Gale never intended to have Jennifer in the future when yeah. he came up with the idea for it. But because yeah. she, you know, she's in the car, and so all the stuff you like about the future is the adapted Jennifer stuff. But the reason they have to take her out for the plot is so she doesn't end up in Back to the Future Part Three. Whoa! Oh, because the second the second she yeah, they you know were exits at the same time, yeah. Where and the second she exits the plot is the second you know you inextricably start heading towards Back to the Future Part Three and Back to the Future Part Two, which interlicks them all. Which is something I enjoyed about Back to the Future, a franchise I did see in theaters. I have vivid Wait, memories of seeing the third part in theaters with my. Dave parents. went back in time to see the Back to the Future movies in theaters. Uh, not, not 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 the first one and the second. Had one, you but seen I, the uh, Had you seen the other two when you saw the? third one in theaters yes <laughs> it was really great caught up well i remember specifically um uh, the reason i remember that i saw the third one in the theaters is i remember the the end title card and like walking out of the theater and being like wow like a three-part movie <laughs> dave's reason, first sequel tease yeah it was no, a big that, moment there's another that, movie coming anticipate well, it that's actually it is that the the like serialization of it and the way it worked was very appealing to me as appealing yeah. as that sounded like uh time travel wow. was to katie i like how yeah. young dave sounds like a kid from south park it's, wow he kind of is <laughs> yeah, from, uh, yeah similar places yeah. that's how we all say wow in, in wow maybe wow. that's the thing yeah, yeah i mean the inter- Bonita, interconnectedness wow. of uh back to the future movies is especially the second and third one is something when you're learning how stories work is really exciting when you realize that like a member of the tannin family is going to knock into a manure truck in all three versions <laughs> and like how exciting it is to like have that joke repeated at you i mean i guess as a kid repetition is something you really like now hold on here watch Katie. Over again. what hold on what you 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 love Back to the Future too because of the plot constructions and the adventure. But oh, I, yeah, you know yeah, when we were when we were argument. talking before the podcast, you're you were going to just pick Back to the Future too, but then you settled. No, I, I always Back intended to the Back to the Future one. Okay, guys so then let me ask you this: How okay. you know? Is this where we're gonna, are we going to fight about Back to the Future two now? No, we're gonna we're gonna talk about Back to the Future one because okay. let's put the plot and the like adventure aspects of it aside for a second. This is a movie about going back t- to not your own past, your parents' past, understanding your family. You are very close to your family, and I wonder if at that time that had anything to do with it. We're talking about you wanting to be Marty McFly, to have some sort of, you know, revelation about yourself, in a way. Um, But you seem to be focusing on the kind of uh, adventure, the special effects, the the big epicness of the movie. But there's a really small, intimate plot going on here, and if you're going to identify with Marty McFly, maybe you have to identify with that arc. I think that that's a hard thing to identify with in terms of closeness to your parents, because when you're a kid, you're close to your parents because you don't know any other way to be. Like, you're just in their house and you're going to be close to them no matter what you do. Like, I was young enough watching this that I didn't even really understand his sense of kind of exasperation with his parents. And I didn't get... Have you ever had that in your life? Have you ever been... Exasperated with my parents? I'm like, I mean, I grew up in South Carolina, went to college in Connecticut. Like, I was clearly very ready to get away from my family. But this is shocking to me because you're not that person at all. You love... You're like the closest person to your family. But that was part of growing up. It was kind of going away and then realize coming back and realizing what I had which is what Marty McFly does in the movie but that's not something that I understood or expected for myself when watching this movie as a kid because I just didn't know I didn't know to identify with any of those feelings like I didn't recognize the signifiers that show that the McFlys are kind of low rent and have a cheesy house 
because they didn't know what any of that stuff meant. Do you feel so, like you have a moment, like you've seen the movie through that lens at any point? Has that, have you ever really connected with its emotional core? Oh, definitely. I think I see it now a lot, too. Like, especially, you know, my parents are younger than the McFlys are in there, but, I, you know, thinking about them being younger, like, I've thought lately a lot about, like, what it was like for them for me to go to college and to go to college so far away and how that felt. Like, I think the older you get, the more you're able to kind of even see George and Lorraine, like, growing up and not becoming what they thought they were going to be. And it's done in a very, like, very basic way in Back to the Future. Like, she only falls in love with him because he falls down in the tree, and, like, that's the basis of an entire relationship. That doesn't... It's not really how it works. But I think you can definitely identify it? with more of that. Oh, is that how is that how your relationship works, David? Yeah, I mean, that's how I've met all, all my women. Fall out of trees. <laughs> Fall out of trees as a peeping yeah. Tom. Exactly. Good yeah. Life. I, no, I think that... Uh, I think that emotional stuff definitely adds up more. And, it's, and even, like, aside from the parents, just... You know, Marty, I think, faces the same thing of, like, seeing that his life doesn't work out the way that he thought it would. And I don't... I wasn't forward-thinking enough as a kid to, like, wonder what I was going to be like in 2015. It just... I never have been especially forward-thinking like that. So, but I wish I had. Like, I wish I had some, like, memory of watching that movie and being like, oh, well, in 2015, I'll have a flying car and I'll have gotten married at the Chapel of Love or whatever happens to them. But... You've I mean, never guess, had a moment where you've been forced to look back at your own life or... or your parents' life? What do you, like, in general? I don't know. Have you learned anything from your family Have from you the past? anything? Well, I just, like, <laughs> Back to the Future is so concentrated in the past, and we do it here, right? We do it on the quarter quells, but to, to do it, to understand your parents in, in a past level and to learn something from that, mm-hmm. I, I think is very fascinating, and it took me a long time to see that in Back to the Future, because I enjoyed it just on, like, Man, the DeLorean, at the end it can fly? Wow. Yeah, you know? yeah. There's like a lot, just a lot of crazy stuff in Back to the Future. And for a very long time, it, 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 you know, my favorite scene of Back to the Future now is probably when they go to the diner and he, they, they uh, you know, his dad orders the milkshake and they get in the fight and they're like father and son. But and they have the exact same, uh, they have the exact same sit, uh, stance when they're sitting at the diner counter. Yeah, exactly. Like it dawns on you how close you are to your parents, but you've ignored it the whole time and you've ignored it throughout loving this movie. I mean, I had that, I feel like I've had that thought. It took me seeing it in the, uh, Zigfield in New York, I think to, to the biggest screen, I guess not anymore, but it's a fucking big screen in New York. And I remember seeing Back to the Future just at that point when I was in college, I'd left kind of similar to you going away from your parents. That's when you start thinking about them the most, perhaps yeah, for in, sure. in a, in a, in a sophisticated way. And it, back to seeing Back to the Future, I'm just like, am I, do I sit like my dad? I probably do. I am Rod <laughs> Patches. <Mwah! laughs> yeah. I, I remember. Oh, oh sorry. I remember seeing my dad's uh, high school yearbook, and there was, like, a whole bunch of girls that had signed it. And then I, like, looked at a picture of him, and it, like, looked like me. And I was like, man, I've never wanted to be back to the future more than right now. <laughs> it's also great to be your parents in some way. You know, oh, we, we yeah. push ourselves away from our familial identity for so long, especially when we're in, like, high school and we go away. And even in, in adulthood, we, you know, there's this idea. You see the movies all the time. Oh, no, I'm becoming my, my mother. I'm becoming my father. Um but there might be a thrill to see what you have in common with your parents and see that you sit the same way or you have the same mannerisms or the same cadence. And I don't know, that's exciting. You have roots and they're Although firmly planted in your Although I would argue, I don't think Marty necessarily learns anything from being like his parents. Like you don't think so? He fixes his parents' lives so that their lives are closer to what he would have wanted in 1985. I don't think he sees nerdy George McFly and, see, and, and identifies with him at all. I think he turns his father into a less nerdy George McFly. But I think he becomes nerdier. You do? 
I think by the end that he, he understands what his father, I don't think that George McFly is just Marty McFly, but older at the end of Back to the Future. Uh, like a happy middle ground where they both seem to have learned something. And well, it's not necessarily about, there. it's not necessarily about his parents. It's that his parents is way to caring about the real world, as opposed to caring about his band, Jennifer going camping, what have you, but it's his time jumping experiences that teach him consequences as mm-hmm. a teenager and like his parents are the way you know sort of through that but basically he establishes the status quo by accident and then he spends two more movies trying to maintain that status quo because he realizes that you know he had it really good in the first place oh my god maybe back to the future has a humongous flaw maybe i really don't like that george mcfly changes at all i i and so this book that I ran an excerpt from the website last week. It's kind of talked about how there's been criticism of the ending because it kind of turns them into really classic 80s yuppies, like where they're wearing tennis clothes and like the house is richer and like they've achieved all these like really uh, superficial goals. So, yeah, yeah, the, the best not... part about changing is getting a big car. Yeah, basically. Yeah, Marty gets a giant car that he wanted. And your enemies are washing it, huh? Yeah, yeah basically. Although Biff deserves that, whatever. He, he can have yeah. a worse Well, the second movie do- undoes that by having Marty be in what he thinks is going to be the classy neighborhood. I try not to think about the second movie. And yeah, bring it down to like the middle. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're going to treat it as a trilogy, treat it as a trilogy and allow the second brilliant... movie to change what it's saying. A brilliant idea that is totally worth talking over Dave in order to share with the world, which is going to everybody's high schools and finding all the unemployed burnout bullies and starting a car washing service that exclusively employs them so that the successful people can go back to their town and enjoy that schadenfreude of having their enemies from high school wash their cars. (laughs) Bullies car wash. Get me on Shark Tank. Let's go. (laughs) Um, Patch, just to follow through on the thing you said, even though I don't think, for me, rewatching Back to the Future holds a lot of nostalgic memories of like learning how to like movies in childhood and kind of very self centered things, which is what I said I liked about it. Uh, I realize all the time that I'm turning into my dad and how happy I am about it. And I, if maybe Back to the Future has subconsciously helped me get to that point, then I am again grateful to this movie. Well, you haven't turned into your dad. I guess that's what Back to the Future is really about. You're still Marty. You're you're the original person that you were and that you you know ran away from your hometown and went somewhere new and absorbed all sorts of ideas but you're you're merging it with the the classic dna og yeah and i think that like that's something that i can tell my parents are really happy about like my parents who are both living in the town where they went to high school i think they see the things that i'm doing and are glad that i'm doing a lot of that stuff that they maybe wanted to do and didn't get a chance to i think that's something that a lot of parents would say about their kids what are you going to name your boys Jules and, and Vern? Vern? No, so, I'm not Doc. I'm Marty. God, I'm going to oh, name sorry. them and George, obviously. Katie, are you <laughs> planning on moving back to your hometown? Not Whoa. my hometown. Like, I think, I think eventually I will live closer to my parents. That's a longer conversation for another day. But no, I, I, can't, I can't go as far as with appreciating my roots as uh, moving back to Tiny Ake in South Carolina. It's not quite where I'm headed. But you'll do it on a train, a flying train. Yes. Oh, wait, with, that was Doc. With George and Lorraine and uh, Earth Angel.
So for my entry into a movie that somehow influenced what I wanted to be when I was growing up, I feel like I more completely answered the prompt than Katie did <gasps> by Damn. picking Penny Marshall's 1998 movie Big, because not only is it about a young boy, Josh Baskins, who becomes an elder Josh Baskins, played by Tom Hanks, but he gets to go work at a toy company in New York and just like charms everybody with his uh, childless, childless, childlikeness, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be in a fancy dinner or basically coming up with the idea for Transformers Beast Wars four, four years before those <laughs> toys were actually made. Um, or, you know, getting away with uh, adult Murder. situations, oh. like uh, basically, you know, to having sex with his coworker or Im- possibly implied sex. And then getting to go back to be a kid and basically, uh, I don't know, I always thought that at the end of the movie he got to then be a kid with the full knowledge of what being an adult really was and how much of a leg up that would be. That's I sort of what just, I would I, take to... Oh, like he like he got to prepare for the adult world earlier, not that he had this like bittersweet sense of what growing up was going to be? Right, like the beginning of the second act is like a great montage of him and his uh, childhood friends like coming to grips with, you know, what a kid thinks an adult does and what an adult actually does. And then, you know, he gets to have this romance afterwards, but then he gets to go back to being a kid and he gets to have all this foreknowledge about what being an adult actually is and, you know, sort of an idea that, you know, corporate America to a certain degree doesn't know what it's doing. And just like having that foreknowledge instead of having something that you need to figure out plus having his job overall in New York. Just like this movie encapsulated everything I wished that my adult life would be. How? You had such such a practical sense of the... I always just thought it was like this sadness where he was like, oh, but growing up is going to be so hard. I wish I could stay a kid forever. Well, uh, I mean, that's obviously the... The grand hope. A lot of what I identify with with <laughs> the movie. That's what your parents hoped you'd, got, you'd get out of it. Right. It's what Simon Pegg said uh, a while ago, where it's like there's a, been a commodity made of the second childhood of our generation of adults, where uh, they've, because we want to be so comforted by those things from our youth, uh, they're able to remarket it back to us and market it to modern day children. And it's like, that's because that's what I saw in Big is like, I could be an adult, but be honored for keeping the sensibilities I had as a child. And I had a very high opinion of myself as a child. So I thought my sensibilities (laughs) were pretty, you know, balanced uh, going in. And so I just thought that'd be great. And like, I was always one of those teenagers that thought they like had everything figured out. And so um, uh, obviously, like if you were to make me suddenly big, and I could, like, you know, run for mayor or something, I probably would have done it. A, because I would have been interested in being mayor at that time in my life, and B, because, like, I thought I saw, like, a clear path through. And it, it, that always interested me. Like, if you take the childhood innocence and transpose it onto an adult, if that actually makes a better world, I, I enjoy seeing that version of fiction play out. Was there a threshold for big then i mean was there a certain age that you pass it was just like no this is absurd or there's no. nothing to gain here i mean not necessarily because it's like as i grew older i mean there was probably a period of time in like early college where you know you're getting into like experimental film and in my case socialist texts and really weird things that's like there's no time for like 
you, you know, I've moved to New York and I visited FAO Schwartz once and I was like, oh my God, this is where Big was. And like two years later, you couldn't have got me there even if you were like, you know, Tom Hanks was there dancing on a piano. But like I came right back around after going through that middle cynical period, uh, both in appreciating it as a film and appreciating it uh, as a, sort of a fiction. I think it, it's not like, you know, artfully directed, but like a Marshall family film or a James L. Brooks produced film, which we might talk about a little bit more. It's not really about that. It's like in a time when 80s movies uh, were so, uh, I guess, oppressive genre-wise to what we would see now in uh, mainstream theaters. Uh, it's really nice to see, like, a pleasant movie that has a little bit of fantasy but isn't like, you know, uh, you know Time Bandits or something. Like, the 80s wasn't very good uh, with uh, light sci-fi. It was either really heavy sci-fi or it was, you know, crazy romantic comedy. And the first so half of why Back movies, to the Future, I guess, also... Uh, did so well because it did the same thing light sci-fi yeah i think we all have like a a couple things tying our choices together not to well, spoil anybody <laughs> else's things so, well, our it, ages are kind of evident was it really hard for you when 13 going on 30 came out and was obviously much better in every way <laughs> did you guys have a timing were you guys all setting your watches by when david was gonna jump in <laughs> did, it, did it feel like your childhood had been replaced or simply sort of evolved I'm not sure why it would be better in every way. It's a legitimate take on it, but it's not going to replace what Big was to me, I guess would be the way to say it. So, like, when I went to the Stanley Film Festival and I had to get one of my clues to the murder game out of a Zoltar machine, I was, like, right back there. I was like, oh, shit, I got to watch Big. I did the week I got back. Uh, it's, like, one of those It's one of those things that stuck with me, like 13 on 30 stuck with you, but because it's so, I don't know. <laughs> when David was wishing he was 13 and not 30, uh, that's when he really <laughs> right. connected um, with What him. I like about Big is that they, Zoltan, Zoltar, Zoltan? Zoltar. 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 Lives at Rye Playland, which uh, used to be my old hangout. For yeah. I, I went to Rye Playland once I moved to New York, too. Uh, basically, like, Wait, early did, coming like, the, to New York. You did the big tour of New York the way people did the Sex and the City of Tour of New York. Right. Big Ghostbusters and then erroneously Seinfeld until I figured out how television works. Aw. But why, so, yeah. why did, I mean, what did you want to do? What kind of situation were you in that you would want to grow up and be lost in New York? I mean, Tom Hanks' character in that movie is living in a fucking dump in the beginning. I mean, he's super poor. In the beginning. And, yeah, in the beginning. Um, well, it's but it's like, all like, it's supreme wish fulfillment, and it just seems so unrealistic. Even as a kid, I just thought Big was kind of, I mean, I liked the movie, but it, that's it, my, that's the it version doesn't make any sense. <laughs> that's the magical version of New York that sold me probably on like going there. It's like the big New York, the Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, New York, mm -hmm. and the New York from the first two Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies, mm -hmm. where it's like you some places are dark camp. and grimy, and some places are like hidden underground malls or toy shops, or like there's a pigeon lady that lives above the opera but because guys, fucking New York. Do you guys, especially, or maybe Dave, who, who now has fled New York, but <laughs> I find, I mean, I, I appreciate Big and... Um, other movies that sort of glamorize life in New York, uh, like 13 Going on 30, like a lot of sitcoms that take place here but were shot deceptively in Los Angeles. Uh, I enjoy the wish fulfillment portrayal of the city because when I'm trudging to work on uh, Wednesday morning and packed into a subway, 
um, or just walking around the streets of the center of the universe, it's, uh, it's you know, have your little Mary Tyler Moore moment where you're like, oh, I'm here, I'm doing it. It's all sort of possible. Yeah, you're no, Ferris no, no, Bueller's I, I Day Off. encouragement. Not different city, but same sort of Yeah, Chicago's going to kick you for that. So, yeah, so I'm, but I mean, it's the same sort of thing. There's all this, there's this idea of the suburban kid making it in the city and outwitting the, it's also the adventures in babysitting idea. Maybe I'm just on this track uh, for 80s movies. But uh, like, yeah, like in his, uh, his apartment that he ends up with on Grand Street, it's like all windows and like a bunk bed and a trampoline and like a pinball machine yeah that like i still really sweet i still want it and i will probably until i'm like 60 which means i've never really grown up and i, I don't know it's but like it's the weird. whole point of big is that being a grown-up is not good like launching into being a grown-up is is a negative experience he want he wanted too much he thought he dreamed too big Mm, I mean, uh, that's what he learns. I think the point of Big is to not lose that thing that makes you a child, which is what they both learn. Uh, the two leads. I forget the girl character's name now. Susan. Susan. Elizabeth Perkins. Yes. Um, uh, but like... Weed star Elizabeth Perkins. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts Winston's of stories star Elizabeth Perkins. about them being on set and thinking that this was just too weird and uh, cliche a movie at the same time that it would go directly to video. And then like it ended up being this sort of like semi-sweet thing that really does have like these weird dark comedy implications. Like she slept with a 13-year-old boy in a man's body. That's what this is really about, isn't it? When you were like 11 or 12 years old, you just wanted to hook up with an older woman. Well, it's interesting that the movie puts him in a position where he doesn't really get pick up on any of those signals, but when I saw it, I was in between the point where I was just starting to pick up on those signals. Jesus, so like, this is like your first boner movie, isn't it? Is <laughs> no, that what we're it's going probably with Top Gun, just oh. by accident. Wait, what? Well, I, like, I saw the, well, yeah, the volleyball scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everybody in my family had a boner, uh, the volleyball yeah, scene. That makes sense. It's a family family boner. Family boner. Uh, and then the other one, obviously, was for Big. Uh, when the, It sure the, was. The touching uh, baseball glove breast moment. Um, wow. Yeah, I don't it's know. Got, it's got dark it, guys. Yeah, it's got. Well, okay, so Dave, you were talking about Simon Pegg's quote about how culture is now built up so no no one has to get rid of their uh, childhood dreams. So it sounds like you kind of. That sound, you loving this movie or feeling that it kind of formed you, sounds like you're almost embracing that. Like the way that culture has developed so that we hold on to our childhood selves is a good thing. But I don't think you agree with that. I mean, I don't. It's definitely interesting. I'm not sure if it's something I could deny because I'm also a believer of like the sociological theory that as technology gets more advanced, culture slows down to make us feel like comfortable. Like all our data is on the cloud; anyone could look at it. It's okay though. There's gonna be you know a revival of my favorite '80s TV show on Netflix. And so I I don't know if like resisting is going to help, but it is interesting that that's what I wanted. And that's what uh, American culture delivered my generation. So I'm wondering if it's like that's something that was sort of uniquely me and uniquely childhood and why, or if it just got delivered to everybody who like lived through the 80s, super corporation, uh, Reagan era. I mean, that went good and positive and negative uh, bad ways. Does that make any sense? Yes. 
Like, why do we get to be the... I, I'm, I imagine that if everybody wants to, you know, have a simpler life like they did when they were a kid in some degree. Even Don Draper has the breakdown about the But no the one Hershey's at the end bar. of this movie feels that way. I don't... Well, I mean... But that's what, that's what it's playing to. I'm wondering why our generation got to be the one that, like, didn't. I feel like, I feel uh, like I our think- generation didn't learn from Big, because Susan's whole thing at the end is not becoming a child with him. She says that she, you know, lived her childhood once, and now she's moving on. She has to find... You know, her, her job demands that she thinks like someone of all ages, perhaps, but she's certainly not trying to relive childhood and she believes that this kid should preserve his should enjoy his while he has it because when he grows up he's moving beyond it well i mean not preserve your actual childhood but like the innocence of it i think is something that she has to learn to rediscover in herself if not preserve i can't tell if this sounds like the sort of uh proto inside out or if it's (laughs) refuting the lessons of inside out but uh, it's hard to shake the Similar stopping your, your, ground. <laughs> your opinions on Inside Out blind you? No, I just, I'm, I'm, am I, regardless of my opinions of Inside Out, uh, at least its quality, I think, you know, whether what it's saying about whether she's trying to recapture her childhood or if it's more the story of Tom Hanks' character trying to um, reconcile his desire to be an adult with the preciousness of his childhood. Because um, when I think of Dave, certainly in the context of this movie, I think of someone who uh, is a extremely well-functioning adult uh, and has been for a long time, but also has preserved his childhood uh, je ne sais quoi or zeal or whatever the fuck you want to call it. Um, and is been maybe big uh, instilled him with a, a certain vigilance regarding maintaining his balance. Then he's been especially on top of it. I don't know. I, I mean that, that a is one of the biggest compliments you've ever given me, especially in context. And b, Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, is it just is it just me, or do we all from like the era where we were like? the age of Josh Baskins when we saw Big, were we able to hold on to that? Well, like, I wasn't this the, the freaky age Friday? of Josh Baskin when I saw this movie because uh, you guys are older than me, but... Yeah. Oh, wow. This movie came out... I think I, I definitely saw this movie at a slumber party and never in theaters. Um, I just want to say real quick, I think we're uh, forgetting the extent to which the baby boomers spent all of their time in the prominence of pop culture trying to get back to their youth, which is why there was so much 50s fetishizing a la Back to the Future going on in the 80s. And even the people who made Big would have been operating at about that same level. Um, yeah. So we're definitely not the first generation to try to force pop culture back to our own childhoods. But, but the people in Big are jumping ahead. They're suggesting that we should get to the now. Well... The kids are wondering if they should jump ahead. It's well, the reverse, it's, right? It's the reaction it's also, to that. It's also different because it's like, I don't know. I watched Cheers, but like Cheers wasn't baked into me as like a three-camera sitcom genre. So I'm never going to like emulate that, even if I want to emulate, you know, like a whole bunch of friends at the bar. So it's like there's something different about the fact that, you know, like, my Little Pony is back and completely different and is selling to adults and to children that is very different than, like, Happy Days being about the 50s. To me, it's like, this is a whole other level where we've successfully, you know, started reviving things and, to a certain degree, making large corporations think uh, that this is the way forward that hasn't really happened before that 
I'm aware of, but that could just be my young man's ignorance. I think speaking. It's, I think it's just a different version of basically the same thing. It's like, it's like it's a more it's like more sophisticated maybe, um, but it does seem. I mean, like the Big Chill soundtrack was selling a ton of albums to baby boomers who wouldn't saw the movie that was about them. So yeah, the same thing. So and Dave, the, are you going to find me. your uh, Zoltar machine soon and go back to your? Your childhood 12-year-old self. I mean, you've been living as a man for a very long time, but I wondered if you... I mean, I've, at this point, I'm enjoying the ice cream and beer at the end of the night combination. Wow. So I, I think I found the sweet spot, but I'm, I'm hoping sweet that I haven't... Sweet spot, ice hey, cream, hey. I think I haven't lost the, um, the 13-year-old Dave uh, part of me quite yet. I will but, say this. Know, I want to own a pinball year. machine one day. Yeah. Oh, man. I have the one that I want to own. We should talk about this some other time. But there's the Indiana Jones trilogy, not the one with <laughs> Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Oh, so good. Oh, the space goes down, down, baby, down, down the roller coaster. Sweet, sweet, baby. Sweet, sweet. Don't let me go. Shimmy, shimmy, cocoa bop. Shimmy, shimmy, rock. Shimmy, shimmy, cocoa bop. Shimmy, shimmy, rock. I'm at a girlfriend of Triscuit. Uh, well, we're finally going to be talking about a good movie on this episode. Wow, really? Oh, yeah, bearing the lead. Man, really wasting time. Great segue, Dave. Thank you. It was much, much smoother than I could have done myself, uh, and I am ruining it by uh, focusing on it. Uh, the film we're going to be talking about now is Broadcast News. Which, which I believe we've talked about before, yeah, because it's one of two movies you like. It's one of two movies that I like. Uh, it's Broadcast News, Lost in Translation, and... Um, broadcast to, Translation. And broadcast Translation, yes. And, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't see Broadcast News until a little bit later in life. It was not a childhood touchstone for me like Katie and Dave's movies were, and I think that that's kind of appropriate given that... Um, it's a movie about a adults. It's a movie about adults. Yeah, it skews a bit older. Um, You're also not... born 15. Let's right. be clear here. Yeah. Right. Uh, I, I came out of the womb. It was a cesarean section. I was just talking to my mom about her scar, which apparently itched for more than a decade. What? You were 15. Keep that in mind. Oh, uh, yeah, That's later. the sort of thing I have nightmares about. We were joking you you about have how... nightmares about your cesarean section we're... itching? Yeah. I an itch that persists like for 10 the, years? Uh, yes. Oh, I see. That's the next Pixar like film, the actually. Harry Potter scar, and then whenever I was staying out late or something like that, it would itch, and she would no way. She'd be waiting at the top of the mm-hmm. stairs. Oh my god, is uh, this your next movie, powers? right? This is amazing. She might, she might. Anyway, um, I, Broadcast News is, it's a perfect movie as, as far as I'm concerned, and I think that it's really, it's very simple how they've done, and I think looking at its very transparent construction and and the sort of triangle at its core leads to what appealed to me about the kind of person that I wanted to be and, and how the movie sort of represented it uh, as a whole, not really one individual character. Because the movie is three very different sides of this triangle. There is uh, Tom Grunick, who's played by William Hurt, who's this uh, the attractive, they pulled him from sports to be the new anchor at this news network in DC, and he is not maybe the brightest guy in the whatever the expression is um, in the newsroom in the newsroom uh <laughs> let's not yeah but he um he is char- he is allegedly charismatic uh but he's handsome he's certainly more handsome than or conventionally so 
uh, I would hope that Aaron Altman, who's played by Albert Brooks, has some fans out there because oh my I God. think yeah, hundred percent. Uh, I would absolutely as, do out Aaron Altman. As far as no types question. go, um, I would leave a little bit closer to that, not by any choice, but since we're <laughs> genetics, uh, there are a lot of similarities I see between myself and Albert Brooks. His character in this movie, uh, mostly aspirational on my part, because uh, Aaron Altman, unlike Tom Grinnick, is an extremely smart uh, person. He is a master of his domain he's uh maybe a little angry maybe a little bit angry a little bit of a, a firebrand he's also as we learn in one very uh sweat inducing scene not the most comfortable person on air is not always the most composed and articulate when live uh which is definitely something that listeners of this podcast would not be surprised to know that i can relate to uh it probably just better in writing um and he is and sort of at the corner, or rather the center of this triangle, is Holly Hunter's character, Jane Craig, who is uh, whatever the official title for position is. She is the, uh, the what's-her-face of the newsroom. What's, I'm trying to Producer? remember the character's... No, the character's name from the show, The Newsroom. Uh, oh, Lord. I didn't watch <laughs> oh, uh, the, it started with an M, maybe? We Maggie? have to do the news, no. Will. Mackenzie. I, t- I talk McKenzie. about it, but that's Mackenzie. my pick next segment, so Thank I don't you. want to spoil it. <laughs> right. um, she is the Mackenzie equivalent, the forebearer of Mackenzie. Uh, she is sort of at the crux of, of William Hurt's character and Apple Brooks's character, where she is um, a, an extremely dedicated professional. It's still blows my mind how she especially but any of these people do their jobs without massive amounts of amphetamines uh she is dedicated to the integrity of the news much as albert brooks is and this is this whole movie is set around the time uh, and still tragically and probably increasingly pertinent uh, about how news is sort of blending into entertainment and infotainment and that's a lot of what tom grudick's character represents um she is also of sexual interest to both of the men. She's very pretty, and she's sort of... Uh, it's her decision to make this movie, whether or not she is going to opt for uh, William Hurt's character, who sort of represents this um, creatively bankrupt, or sorry, uh, professionally bankrupt future. Uh, that Which is why I assume you love all three characters or see yourself in all three of these characters, because right. you're kind of so, in love with yourself. <laughs> I <wish. laughs> Ding! Wow. Uh, Come on, that I was wish. pretty good. That was pretty good. Uh, but... No, I mean, I think that, you know, together you synthesize all three of these characters and you have one perfectly functioning human. And I think they all sort of are uh, legs of the same stool. And there's a lot of controversy over the ending, which uh, was not necessarily the ending they shot originally, which takes place many years later. And they all get together and they're all at different points in their lives. But I think that um, the, the truth of the matter is that the three of them, at least for dramatic purposes, are sort of a tripod and they... Um, together while they have different ideologies uh as a movie they function really well but i think that you know albert brooks is always the character i most identified with but and and as i said aspired to but i think holly hunter uh despite her inability to choose and and being sort of seduced by what william hurt has to offer is probably the best of these characters and william hurt's character is, is sort of whom I've grown to represent, particularly in our business, not to get too inside baseball about it, but, uh, you know, I'm trying to make a living in this racket of writing about movies. And it's, but did you uh, think you would? Did I think I would? No. But um, <laughs> it's this is not necessarily where I dreamed of ending up, nor necessarily where I will be ending up, but it is where I am now and have been for some time. And, uh, you know, William Hurt's character sort of represents a lot of the clickbait, a lot of the listicles, a few of which I've written myself. Um, 
And we all? Right. And, uh, and, and so I think that a lot of this job revolves around um, knowing which of these three characters you want to be uh, at any given time and how to navigate between them and, and how, you know, ideally, as, as I see it, to sort of uh, have uh, Tom's charisma and Aaron's uh, wit and Jane's command of any situation and, and resilience and, uh, and commitment to principles, I think, is an right. important thing about her. Right. Well, do you feel like when you first saw the movie, David, that you identified more with one character and you evolved and, <laughs> and saw the... I mean, you've seen this movie countless, countless times, but I'm yeah, wondering well, if at your core, if you knew whether you wanted to be one, you were actually the other. <laughs> um, Not to uh, suggest uh, anything. <laughs> yeah, no, of course I identify most with Albert Brooks' character, but I think... Not unlike Albert Brooks' character, and perhaps strengthening my identification with him, I don't necessarily. I'm not always content with that, uh, despite Patch's, you know, blindside cracks about me loving myself. I think a big, a big part <laughs> of kid. Albert Brooks' character is uh, while he believes that William Hurt's character represents. I've said the word character many times in this segment. For that, I apologize. But while while Tom Grunick represents the devil, uh, he also kind of wants to be him. And that's uh, there's so many great lines. I mean, I think that the I, I'm drawn to Aaron Altman more than almost any other movie character I can think of, simply because of uh, the great dialogue that he has, and it's so pointed. It's not just quotable; like it, it might be in Casablanca. I mean, it's so f- fierce. Uh, to, um, and uh, you know, there's that great line that he has about how the devil won't come in with a pitchfork will come in and we'll get all the great women and uh, I would only do a pale imitation. But um, I, so yeah, I, I do identify with Albert Brooks' character and I think that the movie is very honest in how they, where it eventually puts them uh, in their lives. But yeah, I mean, I think that I, I think if I could put myself in that stratosphere, watching this movie and thinking of it as like the, the, the people that I wanted to be when I grew up, when I grew up, when I, uh, became, I don't know, further along in my professional career. <laughs> the man-child uh, you are today. Right. If I could be bouncing between these three people and sort of move that constellation a little bit closer together and reconcile one character with another to the point where I could take some qualities from one and uh, some qualities from Tom and add them to Jane on top of a healthy base of Aaron, uh, I would probably be okay. Um, but the real goal is to be as much like Joan Cusack as possible. Right. But I think... All, uh, all oh, my God. Uh, Joan Cusack uh, can duck under a file cabinet drawer like nobody's right. business. <laughs> I, f- I feel like Joan Cusack most of the time. Me too. Scene. Me um, too. But with slightly smaller hair. Uh, but I think that, you know, the unfortunate reality of our business is, at least I found, that sometimes over the course of the same day, you have to be all three of these people with very little crossover. One moment you have to be doing something that is very uh, empty and sort of banal just to to keep your overlords happy and maintain traffic. And the next second, you are trying to write something a little bit more analytical and probing. Uh, And then, I don't know, maybe at your best, you're synthesizing them. What's Um, interesting about all three characters, everyone in this movie is defined by their job. You know, we don't see them in a lot of personal settings where the news isn't on their mind or right. the dynamics of their workplace aren't, isn't driving them to from point A to point B. D- do you feel like you relate to it on that level? Oh, kind yeah. of their mannerisms aside <laughs> that you personally feel defined by occupation? 
Well, I think I, I feel a lot more that way now than I did when I first saw the movie because of how all of our sort of person brands that have evolved with the rise <laughs> of social media. I mean, I think we are now much more than I was when I just had a Facebook account in college uh, that, you know, was exclusively used to meet girls. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know. And by meet, you mean stalk. And by stalk, you mean poke. <laughs> right. Um, the, you know, now we are sort of inextricable from our online identities and they are, uh, and those online identities are inextricable from what I do for a living, what we all do. I mean, I think most of the people that follow me do so because of, uh, they don't have any interest in my personal life necessarily. And even if they did, it would probably be because of the movies provided an avenue into that. Um, and so, you know, we, so many times in this movie, we see them away from the office, pulled back in uh, because of a breaking story or um, simply they're just their lives are always sort of revolving around covering the news. And I think when I look around at my social circle, while a few of my closest friends uh, are mercifully for me outside of this business, uh, so many of the people who become my friends are uh, a part of it and inevitably whenever we get together and talk uh, it is as one track minded as you might expect um, and I think yeah I think again it's one of the reasons why broadcast news is such a prescient film it was made in 1987 and it's still uh, ahead of its time in some respects even though nobody has a tube television anymore and um, you know the broadcast news is not necessarily what it once was uh, I, I think that the fundamental ideas of the bedrock of this movie especially those informing its three main characters are um, so tied in with media as a whole that they will exist for as long as that does which is going to be for a long time can I ask Another, you a question about Aaron Altman yeah so I saw broadcast movie broadcast news late, like you know, five or six years ago. Which you know, and then saw it and immediately felt like a hole in my life had been filled because I love this movie. Um, and I really was into the uh, kind of unrequited romance between Aaron and Jane, and like how he was this like great friend to her who also was like clearly in love with her, and it was kind of up yeah. to her to figure out what to do about it. And I think the more that I've thought about, it, the more I wonder if that's like kind of part of the insidious nice guy syndrome that's part yeah. of culture and this movie came along before any of that and like I don't fault it for being that because I still think it's a really great movie but it, it does make it harder for me in retrospect to kind of root for Aaron and I wonder if this is well to you I think the point. movie doesn't let him off the hook for that I mean I think that the movie really gets ahead of that problem because it doesn't reward him for being the nice guy by they any all kind of the imagination no it different definitely levels. doesn't no all of them right. yeah they and, all, they and all so, fail to get the girl Right. And so I think that that is part of its, you know, on the contrary, I think that's a huge part of the movie's appeal. It says, don't be just a simpering nice guy who's going to wait around for an opportunity to strike and, and win uh, this prize. I mean, that's sort of Aaron's strategy, and it completely blows up in his face. And uh, and that's in spite of how smart he is. And, and I think it really um, doubles down on that idea because... I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I think a lot of people in the audience think that he is right for her. I mean, the way that they are so sympathetic yeah, with one another, um, you know, I think that there is uh, this this thing where it, it's uh, obviously you're, you're rooting for it to some degree um, and it doesn't work. But I love at the same time how it's less insidious because he's not just keeping it to himself and, and waiting to pounce. He's very open uh, yeah. especially as the movie goes on about his feelings for her, but in a way that's like sort of guarded. It's really clever. I think it's really uh, one of the movie's finest elements is how it allows him to be candid about his feelings while still sort of protecting himself and, and using in a cruel way a lot of the time his own feelings to destroy uh, 
Tom behind his back, and then even more pleasure, pleasurably to destroy Tom to his face, <laughs> uh, which is great. Um, yeah, I mean, I, almost every line he says to Tom is is quotable. Well, one thing I wanted to mention was kind of jumping off something you said, David, was that this movie is prescient because uh, our, our social identities and in, in, on the internet, on Twitter, on Facebook um, seem to kind of parallel, you know, being... Uh, occupation obsessed and I think a lot of people can relate to this you don't have to be working in the news writing or broadcasting anything like that to feel the kind of same swell of being you know being on Twitter is a lot like being in the newsroom sometimes and if you want to if you want to put yourself out there um, just the the hustle and bustle of being on social kind of it, it, it leaks into your real life and I think about Tom Grunnick and and how we use emotion um, and I think all of us can relate to this because of the writing that we've done and the things we talked about on this podcast you often wonder you know is is emotion am I utilizing emotion to get a, a rise out of the people who are watching me or or you know even if I'm putting something on Facebook am I doing it for myself or am i doing it for an audience for some reason am i trying to u utilize emotion for kind of a, a nefarious means nefarious might be the wrong word there but i often well, I think about it i often think about you know when i write something emotional um you know the, the line between being authentic and and you know just utilizing and weaponizing that emotion to really get a rise out of people it's it's it kind of scares me and, and i see a lot of it in broadcast news well, I mean, I think you know, I, I'm not going to let this segment get too heavy, but I was thinking about this earlier today because I wrote something last week um, for The Dissolve about me and Earl the Dying Girl and my dad who's sick. And uh, I was thinking about it. It put me in, a, in an awkward position. Uh, not that I didn't volunteer to write that piece, because I did. Um, that I was, uh, you know, making a little bit of money off of doing it and doing it for uh, a public and an honest public, whoever might be reading the piece. Um, right, I'm sure you got and, a lot of reactions on, on the tweets or something like that. On, on the tweets, right. And my, but my, my feeling, and this is uh, really just for myself, and I know it to be true, and I knew it to be true when I volunteered to do the piece, is that I've had a lot of difficulty. Um, it hasn't been a reluctance, as you can see, to uh, talk about this. It's been a, a difficulty. It's been really hard for me to articulate what it is that I feel, not uh, to have the interest to communicate that. And I knew that um, the only way that I would really be able to make any headway in that um, would be putting pen to paper, so to speak, fingers to keypad. And the way that my life works and the way that my energies orient themselves are such that I would never be able to self-motivate myself to do that um, for for sport for nothing for uh not for nothing for money i just mean like you know i wouldn't be able to just have a document that i type to myself diary like on my computer and have it sit there and and build towards something i would only be able to uh put this into an emotional framework that i understood by writing it in a context with which i'm familiar and so i found that uh work and, and writing about it in the context of a movie and most of the article is really about uh, a movie that has nothing to do with with me or my father uh, was uh, very helpful for me, um, and I'm not saying that's necessarily relevant to broadcast news, but I think all, you are seeing, as the movie suggests, in a way that we don't get to see. And maybe the whole Brian Williams thing clarifies it, but we are seeing their personal lives playing mm -hmm. out through their work um, in the movie, and I think that 
yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that I can relate to. I think that we are products of the society that they are fighting against in broadcast news in which the personal becomes part of the story and you're kind of playing off emotions in that exact way. You're talking about patches, like you worrying about that makes you kind of a relic. It's not the way that the internet has been made to work. Like I think what Aaron Altman would say about BuzzFeed, I think would curl your hair. Yeah, this is why no one follows my Tumblr. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have enough feels A broadcast news sequel would be Just so I mean (laughs) I I would hope that it was just one 133 minute shot of of, uh, of Aaron Altman or Abba Brooks as Aaron Altman just yelling at the camera about what's happening in the state of media. Uh, it could be a monologue film, all this Spalding Gray. Uh, but I would love to hear, I would love to hear that. Um, he would certainly have some hell to raise. Life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. Beautiful, 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 beautiful boy. Beautiful, 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 cold. All right, Patches. All bring, right. the, bring those emotions. I don't, I don't know if I have them. Um, beautiful, 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 cold. <laughs> that might be the beginning of the segment. I'm, uh, I'm going to talk about Mr. Holland's Opus, um, a, a Disney movie from the director of Mighty Ducks, 1995. A movie we probably shouldn't care about. I don't know. It's, you know, they were processing these movies at this point in the 90s. Inspirational schlock, I guess, from directors we don't talk about anymore. I think uh, director Stephen Herrick went on to direct a pilot for MacGyver Jr., just to give you an idea of where that guy is at. Not doing a whole lot. Um, Why do I love Mr. Holland's opus? I guess, you know, I I, I was probably older than you guys when, or when, I'm speaking to Katie and Dave, when you guys saw, it sounds like you guys saw Big and Back to the Future when you were we. I lads. saw Mr. Holland's Opus on opening night. Thank you I, very I'm, much. I'm you, no, no, sure uh, I, I meant your respective films. David was older for broadcast news, <laughs> and I, we were we were pro- we all probably. I don't know. Did people see Mr. Holland's Opus at theaters? David did. I did. I did. You did. I think so. No, did, I think home video. Weep? Um, I guess this was the safest movie that my parents could take to me, take me to. My parents didn't take me to a lot of movies, um, but anything in the Disney, anything with the Disney castle stamp, uh, seal of approval, I, I got to go to. So I definitely saw Mr. Holland's Opus in theaters. Um, and I think for a long time, uh, it was a movie that stuck with me because it's, it's, it's extremely sentimental. It's, you know, I was going to pick Dead Poet Society for this. I guess I have a, an affection for these educators. Oh, patches, my patches. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I love a good educator movie, uh, you know, Stand and Deliver and these type of yes. things where the power of, of speech and the power of human connection can help people rise um, literally on your desks in Dead Poet Society. And Mr. Helen's Opus, for me, you know, first was the connection to music and to art and, you know, seeing an artist, um, see, see music as, as not 
music as as but in as sound and not language but as a sensation um and seeing how music can communicate with people and connect people and i obviously adored that aspect of it for a very long time i love classical music i have studied music in my past and it brought me to it brought me to film school it brought me to journalism music is very much a part of my life and and music theory and music studies um but when i saw mr holland's opus you know i was in fourth grade choir or something like that. I hadn't done a lot of that yet. And it kind of, I, I, I don't want to say it led my path because it was all serendipitous after that, the way I got into music, but my life seemed to reflect Mr. Holland's opus in a certain way. I had a very important music teacher in my life and I probably gravitated towards that because I love educators and I love mentors and I can really feel the power of that uh, kinship. Uh, and, and, I think Richard Dreyfuss' performance that he starts as a reluctant educator. He's not already part of a system that he wants to fix. He's very much a failure at the beginning of the movie. And that's important to me, too. I think as, as I've seen the movie multiple times growing up, um, being able to, to, to know that my life can change, um, that I can start out as one thing and become something else which is what all the students go through in that movie and what mr holland himself you know he wants to be a composer uh he wants to be something tremendous he wants to be known for his music for his art and he can't get there uh he can only be known for making a huge impact on these students and then who later at the end of the movie play his opus for him play something he's worked on his entire life um which i find very sweet uh to to play an important role uh, you know i think i i've always admired educators people who can really teach something to you not necessarily people who just stand in the front of a classroom and read off their notes which mr holland does in the beginning we forgive him for that because he he learns to connect with people and what that really means what to what it is to really teach someone and i i to this day i wish i could teach more like i would love to be a teacher i don't know what i would teach um i've had the the chance to do that for some some young people in the film world uh since being here in new york i've been very lucky to to connect with like uh some organizations helping kids make movies which has been beautiful 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 coal um, <laughs> but you know when i was younger i i never saw myself as a teacher just someone who really thought education was important and looked for that uh, throughout my school. And I, I today am very frustrated by my middle school experience, my high school experience, and I was happy to find one person that I could really connect with. But I don't know. What, what does, does Mr. Holland get anything right for anyone else? I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure. So Where, yeah, I you, mean, you, I, said, you said you found somebody you could connect with. You're talking about the movie, Richard Dreyfuss in the movie? No, I think I found, I mean... Or like a teacher. I, I, when I saw Mr. Hans Opus, I dreamed of having that person. And I really feel lucky enough to have found that. And I don't necessarily think I was driven to that kind of relationship because of Mr. Holland's Opus. But I was definitely um, open to it, vulnerable to, to that kind of impression from a teacher in my life. Um, and I think you, aspiring you, to be someone like Mr. Holland. Uh, in, in, and I probably, yeah, I looked to Richard Dreyfus, But really, I was one of the students early on. Did you always see your teachers as people? Like, yeah, which was of... part of my problem. I got in trouble a lot uh, in high school because I talked to people 
as people. <laughs> We're not supposed to do that. Uh, and and you know my my, you know what's funny? The music teacher that I really bonded with in high school was um, twenty five when he started at the school. So you know how old was I? Fifteen, sixteen? When how old are wow. you when you start high school? 14, 15? Fourteen. Um, I mean, he yeah, was—he felt no, really old, but yeah, he, you have no sense of a teacher's age. They were all children, and you just don't—they were so <laughs> mythic in your mind at the time. Yeah, it's, it's actually—I I often think about how old seniors felt in high school. Oh my god, <laughs> they're so young, I remember and don't that. they still yeah. feel old in your memory? Yes, they—they they like, look oh, very old. Um, and teachers, even more so. I mean, this guy was a piano, a jazz pianist from New York, and he kind of had the same path as mr hollett you know he he was into composition he still composes to this day and he had many compositions play all around the world it's very cool he went back to grad school and, and graduated in composing he still teaches music at my high school but i mean it definitely felt like this guy had left new york and he needed a job uh and he was teaching us for money um but he never approached it that way he was like mr holland and i was so lucky to have that experience to to have someone who saw this deep meaning in art and music. Um, and I think that's the beautiful thing about Mr. Holland, what I really aspired to and what I, I still think about that movie whenever I think of someone who seems off a path or seems so capable. I, I really believe in everybody. You know, I was just listening to um, Barack Obama's uh, what the fuck podcast WTF podcast with Mark Marin, um, and I feel so bad for that guy. What an eternal optimist! He just really believes everyone in the world is so great. And um, talking about Obama, not Mark Marin. Yeah, Obama, Obama, <laughs> definitely not Mark Marin. Um, yeah. But you know, Obama believes in the greatness of everybody. That's a hard thing to do when you're president and you need to take hard stances, I guess. But and when True Detective season two is airing. <laughs> yeah. uh, just such a grim such a grim presence but like i i feel i i relate to that i really believe in everybody and in the, the goodness in everybody and everything i mean i hope i example that on this podcast trying to like everything i know critics get a bad rap but i really want everything to be good yeah i don't know i i really I think this is a really fun movie. I mean, it's sweet. It's earnest. I, for whatever reason... It's so earnest. Uh, it's so earnest. But for whatever reason, it's the importance of being earnest, some might say. Is, uh, earnest be Warhol. <laughs> right. Uh, the, for whatever reason, my entire life, the scene where the fire trucks go by and Cole doesn't cry has always stuck oh, with yeah. me. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, that makes me tear but, up. Uh, I, I have, since seeing this movie on opening night have uh, anxiously awaited the moment where I'll have a kid of my own and we hear a fire truck and I'm like, going to be like, you cry. <laughs> cry now or I'm going to be worried. Um, but, I'm not uh, learning sign language. God you'll still it. love him even if he doesn't <laughs> cry. Yeah, no, Dave, Dave captured it. I'm not learning sign language. <laughs> I got enough going on. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I sometimes, and this is a sort of a natural reaction to schlock, and I don't use schlock as the... Um, uh, you know, in quite the denigrating terms as, as it, it perhaps it should be, but uh, the ending of this movie is very over the top. Uh, they all come people, back as right. as the music program is dissolved. Right, and I, I've always struggled uh, with how honest that is. If if it sort of undercuts, you know, this this glorious tribute that confirms that his life. Um, has always worked towards meaning, has in any way undercut 
the integrity of his just simply doing it day in and day out for the benefit of these kids, that it becomes more about him and, and his reward. I mean, I understand the message there is that his students are his masterpiece. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it's selfish. It, I don't. I don't think it's selfish because the whole movie is about him learning selflessness. I mean, that you can be appreciative for what you do, and those people can come back and say thank you. That's not a selfish act. Right. That's a life well lived. He gave himself for sixty years to all these students, and I mean, he was tempted many times. There's, there's, you know, there, an actual uh, girl he he feigns interest in for a moment, and he thinks he can run away from it all. Oh, I don't think he's feigning. He well, is, okay, uh, not not. I'm sorry, he's he not feigning. He's he, not uh, feigning interest. He <laughs> in the beginning maybe, but then he it definitely is tempted, and it almost you know it could have happened. Um, but he chooses to stay. He understands his life, and he he has given himself over to teaching which i think is so noble and i don't feel at the end that you know having people come back and congratulate him is becomes a selfish thing like oh i did it for myself it's a personal triumph i don't feel that way whenever i see you know this year the tony awards uh, uh they they paid tribute to a teacher an educator in the theater world um, and I actually, someone on my Facebook was a student of theirs, just like, you know, writing this long message about how this guy was a wonderful teacher. And they were so happy to see something as gigantic as the Tony Awards tip their hat to where these skills and this love for theater really starts in the classroom. And I mean, that's good. That's, we should be patting our teachers on the back because there's a lot of miserable teachers who are like Mr. Holland in the beginning of the movie. And there's a lot of miserable people who are like Mr. Holland in the beginning of this movie. I mean, I definitely think that I've uh, walked out the door into the crazy world every day just wanting to help people and want, wanting to somehow be as selfless as Mr. Holland can be in this movie, which is totally unrealistic. It's a Disney movie. Um, but it's something to aspire to. I mean, yeah. That's a, that's you a have big a lot, thing to aspire to. You have a lot more hope in humanity than I, I can't, I, mean, I can't think of a day where I could describe myself as waking up and like going outdoors in search of helping people. But you don't I have mean, to, I don't think you necessarily have to like, search for that right you just have to be open to it uh i haven't had the i mean again uh i guess after college i could have done something like teach for america if i was truly dedicated to teaching but you know i meet a lot of people who go overseas and you know do service projects and it all seems about them 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 it's exactly what david is describing it's somehow you know they're uh living their lives and they're growing as people because they're helping others in like africa when it really when they describe it it sounds like they're stepping on these people to get ahead um whereas you can walk out the door and be open to saving people's lives or nurturing their ambitions i mean that's what the beginning of mr holland's opus is all about someone who is terrible at something but really wants to do it and he at first is, rejects that notion she can't play clarinet like go home pack up your stuff um but then it, it reverses when he starts thinking about music as something more than what he defines it as it's it can be rock music it can be something that comes straight from your heart um he, he can save people he was just open to it he didn't have to go searching for it it came to him yeah i mean this movie does it for me for as like he falls in love with teaching but it never really did it for me on like the mu the music level it just seems more like because he's he's trapped in this gig he doesn't want to do 
And then he falls in love with the gig after a while because he gets trapped by a kid. And then he falls in love with the kid after a while. And then just as he's getting his footing, everything gets yanked out from under him. And everyone's like, no, it's fine because you were like always trying to get your footing and you didn't notice that you had. But is he trapped by it? I mean, I guess this is the, the, you know, as millennials were told to get to the top or don't try at all, it seems sometimes. And it's like, you don't have to be the absolute best at something you just have to be open and you know available to the world around you you can your ambitions can twist and turn you don't have to become the greatest composer of all time you can become a really great music teacher and change the lives of all the people around you that's an accomplishment right but that's never his goal otherwise he would have known that there were people supporting him but the i guess that's what the music sa- that's what the, the movie's saying it doesn't you don't need the goal the goal can change or the goal can refract and that yeah, while and that's not bad. Try, while you're focused on one goal, like another one will have emerged that you aren't taking notice of. Because you know life's what happens when we're busy making other plans, guys. Whoa. Can I get that on a, like a wooden sign from yeah. Ikea that I can put on the top I'm gonna, of my I'm going to cross-stitch it for you on a pillow. <laughs> I came up with that phrase. I, I just think it's, a, it's a, as David said, it's a very earnest movie. Um, and I like feeling that way. I mean, I wish I could feel that way all the time. And I think you can. I mean, I just want to get over my own cynicism about the world and how i'm being slighted by it and what i deserve i hope i i don't want to feel like i deserve anything and i think at a young age mr holland's opus kind of taught me to do that or i wanted to be like that um but don't you think at a young age you're being told the exact opposite of it because like you're still you know you're not mr holland you don't have a kid to take care of you're supposed to be dreaming as big as you possibly can before you settle for something like he does maybe but when you're young you be, you become the student of Mr. Holland, I guess. You 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 want well two things. You're both student and teacher in that movie. Um, I don't think if I had stuck to my plan, what I thought the wor- world was supposed to be, that I would have you know left playing water polo, which was what I was doing in ninth grade of high school. What? Uh, How did I never abandoned know? abandoned water polo to to go into theater and music all day every day that's all i did in high school and it's the reason i went to film school and you know i guess i went to film school thinking that i would be working in the movies and the television world which i did after after college ended but it changed things changed and i was open i mean i guess i just followed where i was supposed to go but i was also encouraged by these educators that i have who said i mean you probably could make a, a living who was doing your, art your, who was your mr holland patches my mr holland was a music teacher um and what's funny about that guy is that all my friends in high school hated him because they thought he was like a total hippy dippy guy. I'll never forget my uh, high school girlfriend's dad loathed this guy, hated him because during our tenth grade musical we were singing some number and the uh, the the fire alarm went off and we decided to just finish the number. He's like, keep going, and he was conducting the orchestra and we just finished as people were like leaving and my girlfriend in high school's dad just thought that was the worst like how could he do that why would he keep that is you a there? fire hazard yeah this is a fire hazard and it's just like you know what because we don't we didn't let a number we we didn't let a number go we wanted to finish the show we were dedicated and he was too 16 children guy. died but god damn it <laughs> i would highly recommend looking him up on spotify too his name is john conahan great albums really good musician <laughs> and he's still teaching He's still teaching. He's a wonderful guy. I mean, he's insane. He plays in bands. He's a composer. I mean, 
his music has been performed you know, in the Vatican and, you know, Carnegie Hall here in New York. He's wow. composing out the wazoo. He still teaches music. It's just like there's a guy who seemed like a total failure, actually, when I met him in ninth grade because he was supposed to be in New York playing fucking jazz and being a real musician. And he went to Ithaca to study music. Like, here's a legit guy. Now he's teaching music in the suburbs of Philadelphia. I guess that's, I mean, he saw it as a failure. He told me that, you know, he wasn't supposed to be there. And then he was. Um, and his whole life changed and minded too. I wasn't supposed to be hanging out with you piece of shit. Yeah, and he's like, so and then I was like, let's go sing it at a, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, for the old folks' home. Let's go. And that was my story. Yeah, come, come with me and stare your mortality in the face. Yeah, let me do this. this young is your Matt whole Patches. Life. I I changed him probably. That's young a Matt different Patches movie. makes me consider my mortality as well. I do. That's the last quarter quill, I believe. Because <laughs> we all face death. That does it for the third quarter quell. Thanks for telling your stories, guys. That was a good time. Next week, we're going back to our usual chatter and reviews, and the summer movie season carries on. Um, but thanks for listening to this super long quarter quell episode in the meantime. Have you guys uh, seen Jurassic World? I hear it's like this tiny movie. It's doing a little bit of business, but I think it's really going to pick up. I, uh, I saw a headline in a hotel in USA Today that said, does a uh, summer blockbuster season have a women problem? And I was. I think it does every year. I was. I was fascinated to learn that this hot topic was being addressed in a national newspaper of record. This podcast mm. did not pass the Bechdel test. Never does. It's a Never. piece of shit. Even when we have other women, we're all just talking about David the whole time. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches. I am the senior writer for Esquire.com, and I am on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And all of our episodes go up on FightingInTheWarRoom.com. You can comment, you can share, you can do everything. FightingInTheWorm.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the associate film editor of Time Out in New York and the editor at large of Little White Lies magazine. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. You can find all of us on Facebook. Facebook. It's where all of your offensive relatives live. Facebook. <laughs> Fighting in the War Room. And I get to talk to them about the Confederate flag this week. I'm David Gonzalez. I want to make it clear that as a South Carolinian, none of my offensive relatives have been supporting the Confederate flag. Just saying. That's great. That's good. Good job, Rich Family. Yeah. We were always on your side, Rich Family. They don't even have a Confederate flag to support anymore. I think it's coming out. Aiken, though. It's not gone yet. Takes a little while. The entire Fighting in the War Room cast can say that Aiken mixed bag, I think. Mm -hmm. Right? They have bigger problems on the Confederate flag in Aiken, based on uh, the Lobster Fest of 2014. The Lobster Fest. It's called the Lobster Lobster Fest incident. I don't give a shit. Uh, I'm Dave Gonzalez. I spell my first name DA70. It's also my Twitter handle. I write at Forbes.com, Latino-Review.com, and Geek.com. Um, uh, Game of Thrones is over, which means the Thought Bubble podcast covering comic books and comic book media is coming back uh, in this feed, Fighting in the War Room, and also at fightingintheworldroom.com slash comics. Check it out. I'm excited to have it back. And uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me uh, maybe fighting with your racist relatives about the Confederate flag on Twitter at uh, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H and on VandyFear.com, not writing about the Confederate flag at all. Uh, Twitter is also a great place to find all of us at F-I-T-W-R, where we'll be talking and arguing and, uh, I don't know, maybe talking about something other than the lightning round question we don't have this week. F-I-T-W-R. 
Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you. Leave us reviews, and we'll find you. That too. (laughs) 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 Okay.